Okay, tonight. We are continuing on. I didn't I didn't originally anticipate that we would do as many weeks through this, but it's okay. I just, there's just a few more things coming, so. Uh, here we are tonight, and we've been kind of going through some questions, objections, things like that, things for us to think about. And uh, the question that we're thinking about tonight is, is God a moral monster? And uh, just out of curiosity, who has ever heard this question phrased this particular way before? Sam has. Has anyone? Sally has. Anyone? Craig? Okay. So a, a few of us have. Um, and this ultimately comes from, we might say, the atheist mind. Okay? The atheist mindset. The one that says there certainly is no God because the God of the Bible, at least the God of the Old Testament, um, seems to be a moral monster. And you might think, why in the world would someone think that way? I don't think that way. Why would you ever think that way about God? You mean the God who is love? The God who is full of grace and mercy? Yes, that God um, who in their mind is very inconsistent and in fact, the God of the Old Testament seems to be far different than the God of the New Testament and has caused some people to think that actually God was kind of, um, you know, redeveloped in the New Testament. Take all the bad and filter through it and let's redesign God, you know, God 2.0 for the New Testament, a more likable God. Um, which has also caused some people to just, we just undo or do away with the Old Testament completely because this God is, is all in the, the Old Testament. And um, people have a real issue with this. We're specifically addressing this, uh, is God a moral monster from the Old Testament perspective tonight? The New Testament question to this is something like, um, is God nothing more than a cosmic child abuser? That's kind of the, the New Testament perspective. And if you don't understand where that's coming from, God sent his son to the earth to do what? Uh, for him to suffer and die. So God is a, you know, on a cosmic scale, nothing but a child abuser. And so that's an interesting way to think about things. So we're going to take this looking at the Old Testament perspective of God is, is a moral monster, is, is he? And as we do, uh, there are three different terms, and I have them all here, uh, terms that we should consider because these are terms part of the conversation and so they are this what genocide okay people say all, what we see a lot in the old testament is genocide on mass scale and for this reason god is very clearly a moral monster because he is actually commanding not only condoning but commanding genocide so it is said okay and what is genocide we might ask the deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. Okay? That is what genocide is. That's this definition, all three of these definitions, actually, I took from Merriam-Webster. I'm not trying to create my own definitions to create some kind of straw man argument here, right? It's like these are the actual definitions of these words. Uh, <coughs> so if we're saying genocide, what we're saying is that God is commanding uh, the deliberate systematic destruction of a racial, politi political, or cultural group. In other words, this group is targeted because of their race or their politics or their culture. And because of those things, we need to wipe them off the map. <coughs> Excuse me. Next. Next, the word is moral. Because we're saying uh, God is nothing more than a moral monster. Uh, so what do we mean by moral exactly? Let's define that word. Moral, of or relating to principles of right and wrong in behavior. That's, that's pretty standard, isn't it? But because we've already gone through a pretty good progression of things from this point, what big issue do we have with even this concept? Uh, what is right and wrong? What is your standard for right and wrong? What is your objective standard for right and wrong? Do you have one? So how can you even say that God is a moral monster, in other words, that God has bad morals, if 
you have no standard for morals. So God is a moral monster according to who? According to you? Not according to himself, quite obviously. So there we have, moral. Uh, another big word for tonight, though, is, is justice. And how would just the average person understand the word justice? That is the maintenance or administration of what is just, especially by the impartial uh, adjustment of conflicting claims or the assignment of merited rewards or punishment. Okay, that's one way to define that. That's a very secular understanding of the word justice. But at the same time, to the secular mind, let's, okay, let's use the words you're using. And let's talk about it on the terms that you're giving us. What do we think about all three of these things? You like justice, yes? You want justice. You want God to be just. Well, in order for God to be just, he must pass judgments. And in order for judgments to be passed, there must be something objectively right or wrong. And so we're right back at the same moral issue. You have, you have no standard for what is right and what is wrong, and therefore no one can pass judgment. And if no one can pass judgment, what cannot be done? Justice. So it's, it's self-defeating. So to say back to our question. Is God a moral monster? Now, I'm stating this as a question. What's, the, what's being said is, God is a moral monster. That's what's being said. God is a moral monster. Well, let's use some of the terms that you're using. You're talking about genocide. You're talking about morals. You're talking about justice. But already, when you're talking about these things, it assumes something. It presupposes a standard a standard that you say is not objective and does not exist. So we have an issue. Okay, so as we start to talk about these things, a, a few theological realities that we want to keep in mind. Number one, God is the supreme judge. It's a theological reality. This is true, right? We understand this. Don't need to uh, uh, begin to you know, develop this idea. We know this well. God is the supreme judge. Not only that, God is just. Not only that, God is good. And additionally, God keeps his promises. This, this last one is very important. For all that we're going to look at tonight, uh, which all we're doing tonight is looking at several, um, uh, I, I guess, particular narratives where it is claimed that God is a moral monster in these particular narrative sections. So we're going to look at these narrative sections and we're going to try to figure out, well, what exactly is going on here? And is it true that God has bad morals here? But in order to even think about this properly, biblically, we have to be mindful of a few theological realities. So God is the supreme judge. We know that biblically speaking. We know that God is just. That's not, not questioned. We know that God is good, always. And we know that God always keeps his promises. Okay? So, where in Scripture do people point to say, look, it's very clear that God is a moral monster? Uh, well, let's just start way back here. Noah and the flood. I mean, this is, this is a pretty good one. I'm going to read these. The, the passages you see on the screen with all these are, are ones that we're going to read tonight. And all we're going to do is talk about what was the actual situation there? Because when someone presents this idea to you and says, well, just consider the flood story, for example, right? And you say, well, okay, what about it? When there was an ark and all the animals were led on the bow, it's a cute story, you know, the rainbow. Um, but there were some not cute things happening in that story. And we need to be mindful of that. And we need to understand exactly what was happening. And we need to remember all these theological realities about God. Okay, so let's look at a few verses. Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. And it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was full of violence. I don't even know if I should say this. It came to my mind, but do you, do you know what the, does anybody know what the Hebrew word for violence is? I don't know if it's strange or not, but the Hebrew word for violence is Hamas, if you didn't know that. 
The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with, filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. There, I mean, this is not a good description of the world so far, okay? The earth was corrupt in whose sight? In God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, I mean, he's saying it again. I mean, if, if we don't get it now, it, behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, so we have verse 11 and 12 filled with the same idea, and then God spoke to Noah. So we have to set the stage properly. God didn't wake up one day and say, you know what would be fun? Because I'm God. I'm gonna, I've never made it rain. Rain's a good idea. It's never rained before. I think rain uh, sounds fun. Let's make it rain. But uh, what would be more fun is if everyone in the world suffered, but I just saved one family because I just I like doing that. But however sarcastic that is, that is the atheist mind, that God is just playing around. That, that is the God of the Bible, which in their mind is no real God at all, right? So they have to make this caricature of God. So this is their imagination of who God is. He's up in, in the heavens, and he's looking down at earth, and he says, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to make it rain, and I'm going to kill all these people that I made. Okay, so, but we set the stage properly and biblically by stating all flesh on the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and they were filled with violence, they were corrupt, and it says specifically, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then God said to Noah, on this basis, with all this being understood, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So why did God do this? Why did God send the flood? That's right. And to the unbeliever's credit, we do portray the flood story in a way that maybe is not ideal, right? We portray it as a fun, cute story with animals and the look at the little ark and the... And I get that, and we're teaching... Ki that's for kids, though. That's, that's like, we want to show kids the story. It's a true story. Um, and we do speak of what happened, but at the same time, what, what actually sticks, and these people grow up, and all they know is the cute part, and that's unfortunate for them. But we have to say, but there's a more full... There's a fuller picture here that we have to understand. Um, I will destroy them with the earth. And why will God destroy them? He has reason, does he not? He has reason to destroy them. They are corrupt, completely. They were corrupt in God's sight. So did God just wake up one day and decide that he wanted to do this and he was, it was unprompted? No, no, that's not the case. Okay, so just verse 17 says, we're, I know we're jumping through it a little bit. For behold, I will bring a flood, a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And that seems pretty harsh. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Why? Well, it was already made, the claim was made that all things were corrupt. All living things were corrupt, were corrupted. Actually, it says that because of the sinfulness of human beings, they were actually bringing about more corruption on the earth. So everything about the earth was being corrupted because of the corrupt ones that were on the earth. And so God was going to wipe them all out. Even the earth. It was kind of a reboot of the earth. Right? A foretaste of what will come. Because that will happen again, only not with water. It'll be with fire next time. Moving forward, Genesis chapter 7 beginning in verse 20. So the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm the earth, and all mankind. And everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was breath of life died. 
and he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, those and those who were with him in the ark. And so what are the implications? What are we thinking about who died? The immediate thing that we think about, or that at least we're just going with the, the atheist mind, or maybe in our own, our own contemplation of this, is that there was intense suffering here. Just think. Put yourself in the situation. It starts to rain. The gates of heaven open and crash down on the earth. The flood, the flood gates open of the deep, and water's gushing out from everywhere that you can see. And all of a sudden, the, the water's getting higher and higher. And you, you run, you, you climb on top of your roof, and guess what? It's too high, and now you're wading in the water. And pretty soon, you can't hold it up anymore. And maybe you're, you're holding your children above the water. And you can't hold them anymore. And this was, all, uh, unfortunately, the grim reality of the flood for all living things on the earth. A horrible, horrible image. But the big question is, however terrible, yes, that is, was it unjust? That's the question. Was it unjust? Or was God justified in doing what he did? That is our question, okay? If God was not justified in what he did, would God be a moral monster? I think we'd have to say, well, if he was unjustified in what he did, if there was no justification whatsoever, and God just wanted to do, quote, bad things for no reason, uh, we'd have to agree. But that's not, God is not arbitrary. He's not just doing stuff to do stuff. But he does stuff with a reason and for a purpose. Do we believe in the biblical concept of original sin? Yes, and without God's sustaining grace, <coughs> what would be... Uh, we, 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 we would just go further and further and further and further and further into sin, right? And so, unfortunately, this was the situation, and this is going to be a common idea as we look at a lot of these other texts, is that people seem to be, in the world's eyes, what? What's the issue? They seem to be innocent. Innocent. And that's the big, that's really the big issue, isn't it? Is that they think that, especially the, the conversation goes to women and children, is that how could women and children possibly uh, deserve this? And even if we can get there with the women part, right? The children. The children. Now, this is, we don't just say, yeah, and he did it, and that we just, no big deal. No, that is a big deal. But it is a big deal, and at the same time, it does not diminish the character of God right? If, if this does diminish the character of God for you, then you're not seeing correctly the condition of humankind and what humankind, sinful humanity, actually deserves. We deserve far more than what we actually get as far as to the negative, right? Uh, we, we deserve uh, to not take our next breath. And that's the reality because we have sinned against holy God and there should be justice. So the people who are saying God is not just themselves don't actually want true justice because they wouldn't be able to take their next breath. But they don't understand the God of justice. And ultimately the reason they don't is because they don't see properly the distinction between a holy God and sinful humanity. They see that the gap is like this, like basically God and man, I mean, we're pretty much the same. God is nothing but a man and a, a, a bad man at that. But if we see God as truly holy, a holy God, uniquely holy and perfect, then we see that the gap between us and God is, is immense, right? So we must come to terms with, number one, God's character is unstained, always. That is true. The Bible upholds that idea. However, we also must come to terms with the fact that we see things happen in Scripture that actually make our hearts ache as well. Otherwise, we wouldn't be, I mean, properly human, I don't think. Do you want to see people suffer? 
No. And by the way, did God do this because he wanted to see people suffer? Is that it? That was his motivation. It was his motivation to be a just judge of all the earth because, in fact, he is the just judge of all the earth. So, we need to bring these realities a little closer together so that when people say things like, how could your God have done that and create a picture for you like I did, and they say, you, and you serve a God like that? You, you love a God like that that would do these things? Just two passages from the New Testament that talk about Noah that remind us of something. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household, and by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So the, a highly theological claim being made by the narrative story, true narrative story, of Noah and the flood over the earth. And a couple of things are, are pointed out here about this story. Noah is praised for his faith in God, while the rest of the world around him did not have faith in God. And in fact, Noah was a herald to the people around him, wasn't he? Um, and that's what this is actually saying. And by his action and by his being saved and them being condemned, even this action condemned the world and their faith, making a distinction between the faithful and the faithless. Noah was faithful, and because of his faithfulness, he was saved. The people were not faithful. They, they did not have faith in God, and because of this, they perished. Seeing it in those simple terms that makes us completely understand, right? Those who have faith in God are saved. Those who do not perish. And if we think that the story of Noah and the flood is hard to grip and comprehend, what of hell? Right? What's, what's, what's worse? God flooding the earth or people being eternally in hell? I think hell is far worse. So if we can't come to terms with Noah and the flood, then you're not going to be able to come to terms with hell. Hell being a biblical reality, right? These things are true. So last one here on Noah, Second uh, Peter 2, 4 through 5, and it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So it's just, again, another theological summary of what happened. Noah was a herald of righteousness. And where did his righteousness come from? Huh? Where does, where does righteousness always come from? From, from, from well, it, it, he had a faith in God, and the faith in God was the faith in God's character and his promises. And whether looking forward or looking back, having faith in God and his promises is credited to us as righteousness. Okay? Um, but this is the picture. What, what did he have faith in, by the way? Uh, faith in the promises of God. Uh, what kind of promises here was Noah working off of? They were a little vague, wouldn't you say? <laughs> they were a little vague. And that's actually how the promises of God work over time. Uh, and when you think in terms of the covenants, is that they are very vague at first, but then as things get closer to Christ, we start to understand specifically and exactly what God's talking about, okay? But Noah had faith. Noah had faith. Um, so just anyway, very brief summary of that story, but when we gain context, do we glean from this that God is an arbitrary moral monster, or was he completely justified in doing what he did, and in fact, there are far worse things coming for the uh, ungodly uh, in the afterlife, right? For eternity. So you better just take that as a warning that the ungodly perish. Okay, next story. We set up some things in that one that I don't have to cover again in some of these others, okay? How about the story of Abraham and Isaac? You read that and you think about that story and you think God is a moral monster. Or do you? if you read the story properly. Now, some read it and say, yes, he is, okay? 
those who don't want to believe in the God of the Bible because they don't get it. They don't see the big picture of what's happening. But we should understand what's happening in the story. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 15, it says, God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, and that shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed, and he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. So here's a, here's a promise, so we don't have to go back and read this. God is giving a promise to Abraham right here. Has the child come? Child has not come yet. This is a promise. God said to him, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've, I, I have heard you, and behold, I have blessed him. He will, I will make him fruitful and multiply greatly, and he will be the father of 12 princes. I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. So there's a promise of God that is very specific. You're going to have a child through this woman, and this will be his name, and I will make him into many nations. I will bless you. I will bless him. This will be my covenant. And in Abraham's mind, he is the man of faith. He is thinking God is going to do what he has promised. Right? God is going to do what he has promised. Okay, so then the story continues. Genesis 22:15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your only son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, um, oh, why, why did I skip that portion? We didn't even talk about him offering him up, did we? <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. <coughs> we, we better read that part first. Uh, I was ready to move on, I guess. Um, so after these things, let, let's go to Genesis 22, verse 1. And it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. Okay, and so he does this. And God, so he, here's the issue, right? God says, I'm going to give you a son. You've waited a long time for a son. I'm going to give you a son. And this son that you now have, um, I want you to go kill him. And so God is commanding, not condoning here, right? There's no, uh, there's no, he's not just saying, oh, you want to offer up your son as a sacrifice? Okay. Uh, sure, go ahead. I'll give my stamp of approval. It's, it's unlike that. God is saying, no, here's what I want you to do now. Take that son that I've given you and go kill him. This is what I demand of you. And when we read stories like this, it's God's telling someone to kill their own child. What the atheist mind actually says is, so God, you're, so you're telling me that God at any time can tell you to go take your child and kill them and you'll go do it? That sounds interesting. That's, that, is the athe that is the atheist mindset though. God did it here, why can't he do it again? But there's a misunderstanding of, of, of of the faithfulness of God and his promises and his, his covenant promises. And God is seeing this through to the end. Okay, God has made a promise and now we're going to learn um, what actually is happening here. Abraham said, this is down in verse 8, God will provide him, because uh, Isaac says, uh, you have fire and you have wood, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? That's a, that's a hard verse to read. Um, because, because Abraham knows, but I, I think genuinely he's saying the Lord is going to provide a sacrifice. He, don't, don't worry. The Lord, he already made a promise that you're going to be fine. 
I know that you're going to be fine. Whether that means you're coming back from the dead or you're, uh, God's providing a sack, I'm not sure what's happening here, but you are going to be fine because God made a promise. And so we're going to move forward with what God is telling us to do. And uh, we believe. We believe and we trust what God is going to do. God will provide. So they went out together. And then uh, uh, the angel of the Lord, chapter, 15, uh, chapter 22, verse 15, called a second time. So the first time was, take your son and offer him. Second time was, because you have done this and not withheld your son, I will surely bless you and multiply you. Stars of the heavens, sand of the seashore, your offspring will possess the gates of his enemies and all the nations shall be blessed through you, right? So there are the great promises. So we can see the connection of the covenant promises of God. When you read, again, in Hebrews 11 about Abraham, um, here's what it says. I'm just drawing a connection between the story with Noah and the story with Abraham. We read in Hebrews 11 about Noah. I want to read in Hebrews 11 about Abraham as well. What does it say about Abraham? It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. This is what this was. This was a test of faith. Who had received the promise in the act of offering up, off, offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him up from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, and he did receive him back from the dead, right? So there it is. Um, so the author of Hebrews evidently knows that this was the mindset of Abraham, right? Uh, so there you have this story. But what, what exactly was happening? Um, was God, again, being arbitrary and just randomly saying, I'm just going to make you suffer now and go and kill your son. By the way, we have to see the story through to the end. Did his son die? No. But still, this is a story that's brought up because God said to do it. Um, but what we know and understand is that Abraham was a man of faith. His faith was being tested, and it was being proven. And God was being faithful to his covenants through it all. We see a very similar situation happen here next. It's actually kind of a, a mixture of the two stories we've already read so far. And this is Egypt and specifically the plague of the killing of the firstborn child. Exodus 12, verse 29. It says, at midnight... I don't need to set the scene for the whole... We know this story, right? We know what's going on here. Exodus 12, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not someone dead. Now, I want you just to imagine that this is true just of us in this room. All of our firstborn dies tonight at midnight. For some of you, you're saying, well, I don't have a firstborn. Say, okay, are you a firstborn? Uh, no, I'm not. Well, I, okay. Then just imagine with us, okay? <laughs> Uh, is there a firstborn in your, in your home and though in your family? Yes, there is. Everybody has a firstborn. Someone you know and love, if not you, uh, is going to be dead tonight at midnight. And for some, it's a young child. For some, it's someone older. Um, but as it was here in Egypt, being many, many households, there was not a single household where there was not someone dead. And this is a sad situation right? But what was happening here? It, it's, it's very similar to the story of Noah and the flood, isn't it? Would you all agree with me? Uh, it's very similar to the story of Noah and the flood. Were the people of Egypt God-fearing, godly, faithful people, trusting in the promises of God? Is that who they were in Egypt? Or were they pagans, worshiping the sun and Pharaoh himself, things like this? Yes. Um, they did not know God, and they were sinners. Is that true? Were they sinful? Does original sin apply to them? What did they deserve? 
But up until that point, God had not given them what they actually deserve. Would you agree with that? But the judge of all the earth said, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to take the firstborn. And when he took the firstborn, he could have just taken them all immediately. But he didn't. So he passed judgment. Now this story about Moses, wouldn't you know it is also mentioned in Hebrews 11. And so I'd like to read that as well. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What does that already tell us? Is that to be raised in Egyptian royalty was to engulf yourself in the pleasures of sin. That's what that, that's what that meant, right? So he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, and he was looking forward to the reward. And so by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, and he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And by faith, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And so by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea into dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they drowned. So there's actually more death coming, right? More death for a lot more people coming. So in this whole situation, which again is referenced by a lot of people of how could God do such a thing and just strike down all the firstborn, it's a simple question of the judge of all the earth being justified in judging the ungodly. But the issue is that many don't see the need to judge the ungodly because there's no such thing as the ungodly, right? I mean, you got to get that that's the mindset. There is no such thing as the ungodly in their mind, but there is such a thing as the ungodly. And just as it said about the story of Noah and the flood, that in God's sight, they are corrupt. And he, being the judge of all the earth, can do this, and he is justified in doing so. Does it mean that it doesn't affect us at all? No, that's not what it means. Does it mean that we're heartless? No. But does it mean that we also understand that God is a God of justice? Yes. So this, is the, this next one's the biggest one. This is it. Joshua and the conquest. This is by far the biggest one. The conquest. I'd like to read for you just a few passages. I'm going to just reference Deuteronomy 7. That's kind of, it's only five verses. But verses in the Old Testament tend to be longer than verses in the New Testament. I don't know if you ever realize that or not. So that's, that's actually a good little portion of scripture there. But what's being said is a promise of what God is about to do. Right? By the way, I didn't mention this. I wanted to kind of pull a particular thread through all of these. Um, if all the earth had been wiped out, then God wouldn't have, able, wouldn't have been able to fulfill the promise that, that he ultimately made, a promise actually to all, all humanity, but specifically to Satan himself, that the seed of the woman was going to one day crush him. And if there was no seed of the woman left because God wiped out all the earth, God would not have been able to be faithful to his promises. You understand that? And then secondarily, God narrowed down what exact, where, where exactly this uh, you know, serpent crusher was going to come from, uh, when he said that it was going to be specifically through Isaac. So Abraham, Isaac, and now, okay, it's narrowing down who we're talking about here. So if all the people died in Egypt, God wouldn't have been able to be faithful to his promises. So God had to be faithful to his promises and get them out of Egypt, and he did so miraculously. God is being faithful to his promises, and he is just as he's doing this, right? God, is, God, is, God has a story that's playing out, and no one's going to stop him. So how does this play out with Joshua and the conquest? What's the big issue here? God is saying that he's going to uh, bless the people, take them into a particular land. Joshua 6, that land now is becoming a reality. Moses, unfortunately, who led the people out of Egypt, um, is not going to be able to lead the people into the land of promise uh, because his faith wasn't what it should have been. And so he could stand and see the land from a distance, but God said, that's the best you're going to get. So uh, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, and now Joshua is going to be, in God's words, as Moses to the people, 
right? And so God is now going to use Joshua, and Joshua is going to lead the people into the promised land. And when they do, when they come into this promised land, is it just wide open fields? No one's ever lived here before. It's untouched land. It's wonderful. No, the issue actually is that there are lots of people living here. Lots of different people, lots of different people groups, lots of different religions, homes, uh, castles. I mean, things that you can just giant things that you can't even, I mean, we really can't even imagine how big these cities were. But God said, all of this is now yours. You just need to go take possession of it. And how are you going to do that? And this is where the issue comes in. Joshua 6, beginning in verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, Rahab, this is, this is specifically Jericho. This is when all the things start. Okay, that's where we're taking this from. Now, Rahab helped the people out. He, they, she helped out Israel, and so she's going to be saved. Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take hold of any devoted thing and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble on it. But all the gold and silver and every vessel of bronze and iron, they are to be holy to the Lord. They'll go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, the trumpets were blown. You know the story. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And then verse 21 says, And they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. What does that mean? Family units in their homes killed by the Israelites with swords so that they could take their land and their homes because God had given them that land now was God just saying yeah that's okay I guess I mean if that's the way you want to do it I don't know that I'll do it that way but you can do it that way I, I suppose you go ahead or did God specifically command them to leave no thing alive God actually commands that they leave nothing alive why is that? Well, it's because God um, specifically tells them that they need to remain pure, devoted to him, right? And that they should not intermix with other things going on and serve the gods they serve. And by the way, was every single living person of the Canaanites destroyed after the conquest? No, people remained. So actually, every person wasn't destroyed. But... They took all the land, it was theirs, and they did have rest for a time, and God gave them this land, because why? Well, God had promised this to them, right? But soon, the land was essentially going to vomit them out. Why? Because they were unfaithful. They were unfaithful. It's not like they were a faithful group of people serving God only and God just ripped it from them and said, I'm going to send the Assyrians, I'm going to send the Babylonians, and things are never going to be the same. Uh, and they didn't deserve it. Or did they? Or did they become themselves a godless people? An unfaithful people? And yet, through all this, God is still fulfilling his plan and his purpose. Why? Because even though there were many ungodly, what was always there? A remnant. And who kept that remnant? God himself. God himself kept that remnant. Because if there was no one to believe, no one to be faithful, we'd have an issue. And again, we, we continue to see this narrowing of God's purpose and promise. And now it's specifically through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then David. And now it's, oh, the, now the line of David. And now, and again, so that, that's, that's when we get into the New Testament. Of course, it starts out showing that Jesus is the son of David uh, on purpose. So Acts 7.45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. And so this is a, a Stephen's sermon that he gets stoned for, right? And what does he bring up? the conquest, and why does he bring this up? Because God is being faithful, and the people in turn are being faithful to him. And so uh, he is also showing that it's a storyline that God is unfolding, bringing the Messiah. 
So this is all the storyline. This is God's storyline. And when people face the wrath of God in pagan nations, people who are not faithful to the Lord, do not know him, and in fact serve and worship other gods, is God unjust in taking out justice on them, judgment? Is he unjust in doing so? This is hard uh, because, I don't know, I think maybe sometimes we grow up with a different view of what justice is in our head and like every, everyone is innocent and no one deserves anything bad to ever happen to them because people are just being trying to be good people after all. But the reality, the biblical reality is, is that there is no one who is good. And God has given us all far more than, than, than what we actually deserve. Okay, I, uh, I just want to read one passage and then I'm, I'm going to end on a highlight uh, with one more, one more story and we'll be done for the night. Again, all we're doing is gaining context of these stories so that we might properly be able to address these big things that people are talking about. Um, again, Hebrews 11. All these are mentioned in, in, in Hebrews 11. Why? Because they're stories of faith. And it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish. With those who were, what does the author of Hebrews say the other people were? Disobedient. Oh, so there was a reason that they got punished. It wasn't arbitrary. That's correct. You see it? And it actually continues on quite a bit. But we're going to end with one last one here. Maybe you know this story. Maybe you don't. The story of Elisha and the bears. You know this story? Sounds like a kid's story. Elisha and the bears. Uh, let's see what it says. It's just a few verses in scripture, actually. Let's see what it says. 2 Kings 2, 23 through 25. And this is Elisha. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out from the city, and they jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of them. And from there, he went on to Mount Carmel. I mean, you get the picture of what just happened there? Some seemingly, some kids came out while he was walking through Bethel, made fun of him for being bald. He cursed them, and God sent two bears to eat them, 42 of them. And you might say, that sounds outrageous, that this would even be in Scripture. Or would it? Let me just give you a little bit of context to think about this one, okay? Again, it's not arbitrary. It is set up in 2 Kings that Bethel is the place, the home of a pagan altar that God has actually already promised that he's going to tear down. And it will stand um, as a signal, a monument to God's faithfulness that he is the one and true God. And so that, this place in Bethel where there's a pagan altar is about to be torn down. There's also more here. Uh, the word rendered young boys, it's actually two words. Um, it, it, it can be translated that way uh, but there are uh, many who, ag who agree and, and I agree that it is, it is far more likely that this is uh, about uh, unmarried men who were servants because this is rendered that way many other times in scripture as well um, and if they are unmarried men who are servants who, are the, who or what are they servants of most likely they are servants at the altar in Bethel, the pagan altar. And so who then comes up? Some believe they were actually priestly servants. So these men who come out are servants at the pagan altar in Bethel, and they come and they mock the prophet of God. So now we get while he's angry and he curses them in the name of God. This is Bethel meaning what? House of God. That's what the word means. And what have they set up there? Pagan altar. And so when they come out and they curse him and make fun of him, he sees it kind of in the, in the eyes of David, right? You can't curse me. I, I'm, I'm with God. You're cursing God. No one can do that. You can't defy God. And so he curses them in the name of God. And what does God do? He takes out the servants of the pagan altar. 
So it's not like it's a group of like 12-year-old boys who come out and they're like having fun and running around, a little group of kids, and they're like, oh, look at the bald guy. And then Elisha gets mad and has them eaten by bears. That's a very different story. Wouldn't you agree? So anyway, uh, there's some more on that. But uh, uh, you get the idea, okay? Here are some stories in Scripture that people look at and say, God is nothing but a moral monster. Look at some of the things he's done. Is it true that God is arbitrarily just doing things, acts of violence and immorality? No. God is showing him as the holy God of the universe who alone will be worshipped, and when people stand in defiance of that, he will judge them. That's all that's happening. And no one is innocent. So God comes out moral after all. Right? All right. That's what I've got for you tonight. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, thank you so much for this time. And just reading through these stories and just thinking about biblical history and uh, the things that you have done. And, and we know and we trust, but we don't want to just blindly walk through and, and maybe close our eyes to some of these more difficult things because some of them are difficult to think about. Um, but we understand that you are faithful, you are moral, you are just, you are the righteous judge of all the earth. And I pray that you would help us to think through these things. We just touched the surface of some of these things, but I pray that you would help us to think through them wisely and faithfully, uh, that we would be faithful, that we would be heralds of righteousness, and that we would show the world the plan that you have uh, for salvation in Jesus Christ, and that as we talk about these things, it becomes an opportunity to show that the unrighteous perish, but the righteous shall have life. And we understand exactly what that means through what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here tonight. And uh, don't forget, on Saturday, we are having our uh, little get-together, and that's going to be at Pearson Park.